I'm a father. When I had my first child, something happened to me at a deep, emotional, even existential level, such that I came to value, to truly value the well-being of someone else over myself. I'm not claiming to be special in this regard. After all, the same thing happens to whales and elephants and wolves and penguins. It's not a universal in the animal kingdom, but it is a characteristic in common between human parents and any others who have the imperative of a high degree of personal investment in just one or two young. I imagine a rabbit, by contrast, looking over her litter of bunnies and thinking, I'm not even bothered giving you all names, as most of you will soon be eaten. Let's not get too sentimental about it. But the point is, my conscious experience was thereafter altered to reflect a new and important goal that of protecting and providing for my child. This is clearly in alignment between the evolutionarily inherited objectives of my human organism and the phenomenological character of my mind. Once again, I see that Jesse and I are on the same team. So what are my most cherished values, those relationships and ideas that are most important to me? Primate that I am, I would put family and friends at the top and a sense of security and belonging I would also put my character pretty high up. I notice that when I don't respect myself, when I feel undisciplined and unproductive, I begin to become anxious and unhappy. If I feel inauthentic or dissolute, I get a sense of shame and self-loathing. This puts me at the mercy of the human animal to which I attend, whose neural architecture is my taskmaster. Finally, I have an instinct to seek deep meaning and truth at almost any cost. These values are the inheritance of nature and nurture, of genetics and experience, of the particular psychological niche which I have come to inhabit. In the previous episode, I laid out a set of three developments that seem necessary to me for the evolution of a functional human consciousness like the one that I observe. These are, one, the capacity for consciousness to directly or indirectly modify behavior. Two, the establishment of subjectively preferential qualia, and three, the capacity for consciousness to represent dynamics, at least over some short time period. This episode seeks to unpack the second of these factors, the preferential qualia. There is a dimension along which qualitative experiences, along which qualia can vary widely. It's easy enough to make a list of our favorite and least favorite kinds of experiences. And at the foundation of those kinds of experiences are implicit or explicit goals. If I list some unpleasant qualia, there are those of a perceptual nature, the sensations of pain, which can be experienced to varying degrees of intensity and flavors like burning or dull ache or sharp sting. These sensory kinds of pain must occur in association with topographical maps relating to body representation. And notably, pains like these can be especially salient and specific. Related to pain are sensations like pernicious itchiness. In all of these cases, the capability to prevent or relieve the suffering is such that one would be strongly compelled to do so. Then there are psychological distresses that can seem analogous to pain, but which I suggest are of a conceptual rather than a perceptual nature. Consider frustration or fear each of which is decidedly unpleasant, but these feelings tend to have a different representational object, not being necessarily mapped to the body representation, but somewhere else within the network. Frustration tends to accompany some kind of obstacle in relation to a goal, and fear is associated with, 
with an understood threat. In either case, the overcoming or reduction of the problem would be a preferred condition. What about grief or shame? Each of these horrendous conditions serves to underline the importance of preventing them from returning, of placing a high conscious cost on certain kinds of outcomes. The commonality among all of the unpleasant types of qualia that I have mentioned here seems to be that we, the conscious minds of human organisms, are susceptible to torture and punishment, which establishes the automatic goal to avoid, reduce, or overcome. This aligns our values. Fortunately, on the flip side, there are a plethora of pleasant experiences available to the human mind. These range from good taste to gentle touches, massage, orgasm. These examples tend to occur upon the topographically mapped body representation. Pleasant qualia come in a variety of psychological forms as well. Relief, satisfaction, pride, aspiration, love. All kinds of pleasant qualia function as rewards for the accomplishment of implicit and explicit goals. What are the fundamental human goals? Abraham Maslow described a hierarchy of human needs in a 1943 paper in the Psychological Review. He briefly summarized them in this statement, quote, there are at least five sets of goals which we may call basic needs. These are briefly physiological, safety, love, esteem, and self-actualization. In addition, we are motivated by the desire to achieve or maintain the various conditions upon which these basic satisfactions rest, and by certain more intellectual desires." Unquote. If Maslow's or any psychological theory of motivation is even rational, a functional conscious mind is required to be motivated. The spectrum of pleasant and unpleasant qualitative experiences that compose our conscious lives seem designed to make motivation a plausible and powerful force in human behaviors. Zombies aren't motivated. Negative and positive qualia of various kinds are amenable to being thought of in opposition to one another. Shame is often the opposite of pride. Relief comes with the cessation of fear. For conscious will to be an effective executive, it helps to have perceptual and conceptual contents which make sense from its point of view under a regime in which the accomplishment of goals is aligned with positive and negative mechanisms or motivation. It seems to me the conscious contents come in two broad varieties, those that are descriptive and those that are endowed with value. The whole conscious experience, if it is to be maximally informational and adaptive, will be a composition of dynamic contents that can quickly be assessed in terms of goals. What is in my immediate personal, social, and conceptual environment? How might it be a threat against my goals? And how might it present an opportunity to achieve my goals? I really like Jordan Peterson's discussion on the science of perception in 12 Rules for Life, where he says, quote, We don't see valueless entities and then attribute meaning to them. We perceive the meaning directly. We see floors to walk on and doors to duck through and chairs to sit on. It's for this reason that a beanbag and a stump both fall into the latter category, despite having little objectively in common. We see rocks because we can throw them, and clouds because they can rain on us, and apples to eat, and the automobiles of other people to get in our way and annoy us. We see tools and obstacles, not objects or things. Furthermore, we see tools and obstacles at the handy level of analysis that makes them most useful or dangerous given our needs, abilities, and perceptual limitations. The world reveals itself to us as something to utilize and something to navigate through, not as something that merely is.
unquote. The human mind has been sculpted by natural selection toward the alignment of the survival and reproductive goals of the human animal to the valence of conscious experiences. In context, our mental nature is to pursue and maximize positive qualia and to avoid and minimize negative qualia. I suggest that this is the nature of every evolved and consciously empowered species on Earth. Biology in these animals has outsourced to the conscious will that complex integrated nervous systems produce important executive functions. This is a high-risk strategy since it might lead to unreliability of correct adaptive behaviors, but the expense is paid by the massive improvement in the behavioral repertoire. Complex goals can be accomplished that would have been entirely unknown to the ancestral environment. Witness that human beings build new inventions and technologies that radically solve problems in survival and prosperity. We have unlocked in these accomplishments new goals that could not have been predicted in former times. Yet in the end, these new goals are ultimately elaborations on pre-existing, more fundamental ones. Have you ever watched a troop of chimpanzees? They utilize at least a few handy and intelligent techniques for achieving their goals. For example, they position nuts on fallen logs, which they straddle, and then they crack the nuts with large rocks. And they break off sections of sticks, which they coat with saliva, and insert into holes to collect insects. They can be taught other techniques, which to the extent that they produce food rewards, they will apply in order to reach the goal. Even rodents can be taught to do various tasks in order to get a reward. Human cultures have made this into an art form to the point of entire systems of economics in which we all participate. We have a capacity to make sacrifices in the present for the realization of our goals in the future. This is analogous to accruing interest on our present behavior. It is the capacity that we use when we till the soil and sow our seeds, when we fence in the land to keep in the herds, when we master our niches in the division of labor. The thalamocortical system, with its hierarchical and topographical organization, keeps the mind on a tight leash. I observe that I am often engaged in a kind of personal warfare with the limitations of my organism. This occurs naturally enough because I have conflicting goals. Even if I am confidently justified in believing them to be the, in my best interest, I have no means of negotiating directly with the neural networks that produce my qualia. When I head out for my morning run, I am often doing so even though I don't want to. Likewise, I have to restrain myself from eating or drinking too much, to work against the wind of desire to smoke cigarettes. The application of discipline is a higher-order goal structure that we learn to impose over our more base goals. William James discussed conflicting goals in The Principles of Psychology, in which he wrote, quote, We know what it is to get out of bed on a freezing morning in a room without a fire, and how the very vital principle within us protests against the ordeal. Probably most persons have lain on certain mornings for an hour at a time, unable to brace themselves to the resolve. We think how late we shall be, how the duties of the day will suffer. We say, I must get up, this is ignominious, etc. But still the warm couch feels too delicious, the cold outside too cruel, and the resolution faints away and postpones itself again and again, just as it seemed on the verge of bursting the resistance and passing over into the decisive act." Unquote. I think James illustrates a common situation that all of us can relate to. It's strange the way we have to negotiate with ourselves to overcome our own natures even when we know what we are trying to do is for the best. But I think it is best understood as a fundamental level of implicit goals that are established in our evolution. These goals 
need not be known or appreciated at a conscious level. We serve them all the time, whether we like it or not. Avoid pain, seek pleasure. But we, like James, encounter situations in which these goals are directly at odds with our higher, explicit goals. The following is from the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Quote, At break of day, when you are reluctant to get up, have this thought ready to mind. I am getting up for a man's work. Do I still then resent it? If I am going out to do what I was born for, the purpose for which I was brought into the world, or was I created to wrap myself in blankets and keep warm? But this is more pleasant. Were you then born for pleasure? All for feeling, not for action? Can you not see plants, birds, ants, spiders, bees, all doing their own work, each helping in their own way to order the world, and then you do not want to do the work of a human being? You do not hurry to the demands of your own nature. But one needs rest, too. One does indeed, I agree. But nature has set limits to this, too, just as it has to eating and drinking. And yet you go beyond these limits, beyond what you need. Not in your actions, though, not any longer. Here you stay below your capability. Unquote. Marcus Aurelius was writing for himself, not for an audience. He was right there on the page, engaging in an argument with himself about the need to achieve his higher explicit goals at the expense of his lower goals. Interestingly, he describes these in terms of the nature of being human, implying that much of what we do when we work or do errands or communicate with other people, all of these things are in service to our valued goals. Of course, this is the case, or we would never get out of bed. In modern humans, many of our goals can be very abstract with regard to the evolutionarily established objectives of seeking shelter, food, sexual partners, and social esteem. But if we look closely at the motivations underlying our behaviors, I think we will usually see that whatever we are doing is serving either some basic goal or some higher goal that essentially reduces to one or more basic goals. Whatever we do to attain money is obviously in that category. But even activities like practicing the guitar or juggling or lifting weights essentially reduces to pursuing sexual partners and social esteem, both of which essentially reduce to seeking the improvement of present and future qualitative states. It seems to me that our principles are sets of guidelines for how we get the best value out of a lifetime of qualitative states. What we normally mean when we discuss our values, honesty, integrity, hard work, loyalty, fairness, justice, kindness, courage, these are principles of personal and social behavior that wisdom teaches us to cultivate as a means to attain our higher goals. And our highest goals are systems of good qualitative states, at least hypothetically. A black belt in jiu-jitsu, tenure in your academic department, a marathon, the corner office, writing a bestseller, building a cabin in the woods, your pilot's license, whatever it is, we hope that such attainments increase our access to long-lasting preferred qualia. Why not just turn to drugs to get instant access to great qualia? This is a good example of how discovering a cheap and effective solution to our implicit fundamental goals is a serious threat to our higher goals. We may even fail to determine what our higher goals could be. This is a cost that most of us would not want to pay. Moreover, tomorrow's hangover or withdrawal, financial losses, and Friendships lost can all bring the karmic debt collectors ringing the doorbell in short order. So a satisfactory life, one characterized by a balance in favor of positive experiences, requires work and sacrifice in the surface of well-planned goals. 
I propose that human consciousness endows us with a point of view from which to evaluate our perceptual and conceptual environment to predict the changes that will occur in it and to chart a strategic path. The pursuit of happiness by such means is our mandate. It's a great privilege to be the conscious mind of this human being. His basic needs are met, so I am not made to suffer their absence. He has a healthy family, well provided for and full of potential, and I get to love them and to be uplifted by their love. He has close friends with whom I get to feel companionship and affection. And he has a job in science, not toiling under the summer sun or in some stifling factor, factory, but one that often enables me to feel the great pleasure and satisfaction of learning and creating as his accomplice. It's also a privilege to be the mind of a human being because whatever the cause in our common ancestry, we have the capacity to appreciate beauty in music and literature and in nature. We are capable of the simultaneously elevating and humbling feeling of awe in the presence of greatness or grandeur. The emotional power of a brilliant melody that breaks our hearts or a killer riff that makes us feel strong and confident. Finally, it's a privilege to be the mind of a human being because though we are highly flawed creatures capable of real villainy, we also have the opportunity to overcome our shortcomings, to get better, to become heroes. Mm -hmm.